Section 5 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Duvnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 3, The Autonomous Center in Poland at its Zenith. 1501 to 1648, Part 1. 1. Social and economic conditions. In the same age in which the Jewish refugees from Spain and Portugal were wending their steps toward the Turkish East, bands of Jewish emigrants fleeing from the stuffy ghettos of Germany and Austria could be seen wandering towards the Slavonian East, towards Poland and Lithuania, where during the period of the Reformation, a large autonomous diaspora center sprang into life. The transmigration of Jewish centers, which is so prominent a feature of the 16th century, found its expression in two parallel movements. The demolished or impoverished centers of Western Europe were transplanted to the countries of Eastern Europe on the one hand, and to the lands of contiguous Western Asia on the other. Yet, the destinies of the two Eastern centers, Turkey and Poland, were not identical. The Sephardim of the Turkey were approaching the end of their brilliant historic career and were gradually lapsing into Asiatic stopper, while the Ashkenazim of Poland, with the supply of fresh strength and the promise of an original culture, were starting out on their broad historic development. The mission of the Sephardim was a memory of the past. That of the Ashkenazim was a hope for the future. After medieval Babylonia and Spain, no country presented so intense a concentration of Jewish energy and so vast a field for the development of a Jewish autonomous life as Poland in the 16th and the following centuries. The uninterrupted colonization of Slavonian lands by Jewish emigrants from Germany, which had been going on during the Middle Ages, prepared the soil for the historic process which converted Poland from a colony into a center of Judaism. The large Jewish population settled in the towns and villages of Poland and Lithuania formed not a downtrodden caste nor a homogeneous economic class as in Germany, but an important social entity unfolding its energy in many departments of the social economic life. It was not tied down to two exclusive occupations, money lending and petty trade, but it participated in all branches of industrial endeavor, in production and manufacture, not excluding rural avocations such as land tenure and farming. The men of wealth among the Jews farmed the tolls, transit and customs duties, and the excise, state taxes collected on wine and other articles of consumption, and frequently attained to prominence as the financial agents of the kings. When, at a later date, the Jews were hampered in the business of tax farming, their capital found a new outlet in the lease of crown and schlachter estates, with the right of propination or liquor traffic attached to it, as well as in working the salt mines in timbering forest and opening up the other resources of the soil. 
the big merchants were busy exporting agrarian products from Poland into Austria, Moldova, Wallachia, and Turkey. The lower classes engaged in retail trade, handicrafts, farming, vegetable growing, gardening, and in some places, particularly in Lithuania, even corn growing. The economic activities of the Jews, entwined with the material life of the country by numerous threads, were bound to produce a similar variety of form also in their legal condition. Considering the peculiar caste structure of the Polish state and the relative political freedom enjoyed in that semi-constitutional country by the governing classes, the landed nobility, the clergy, and partly the burghers, the legal position of the Jews was of necessity determined by the conflict of political and class interests. Bridled by an oligarchic constitution, the royal power was bound to clash with the vast privileges of the landed magnate, the big Schlachter. The latter, in turn, on the one hand fought the claims of the petty rural Schlachter, and on the other, resisted the advance of the Christian urban estates, the businessmen and craftsmen, who were a powerful factor owing to their municipal autonomy and their well-organized guilds. The fight was carried on in the diets, municipalities, and law courts. Within this conflict of economic interests, the clergy of the dominant Catholic Church pursued its own line of attack. Having been weakened during the Reformation, it now renewed its strength in consequence of the Catholic reaction and the arduous endeavors of the Jesuits. These estates differed in their relation to the Jews, each in accordance with its own interest. Medieval ideas had already taken such a deep root in the Polish people that, despite the constitutional character of the country, a humane and lawful attitude toward the Jews was out of the question. They were appraised according to the advantages they could bestow upon this or that class, and since in many cases what was advantageous to one class was disadvantageous to another, a conflict of interest was unavoidable with the result that the Jews were the object of protection on the one side and the targets of persecution on the other. The Jews of Poland were favored by two powers within the state, by royalty and in part by the big Schlachter. They were opposed by two others, the clergy and the burghers. Aside from the interest of the exchequer, which was swelled by regular and irregular imposts upon the Jews, the kings derived personal benefits from their commercial activities. They valued the financial services of the Jewish tax farmers, who paid large sums in advance for the lease of customs duties and state revenues or for the tenure of the royal domains. These contractors and tenants become, as a rule, financial agents of the kings, owing to their ability to advance large sums of money and were instantly in a position to exert their influence upon the court in the interest of their co-religionists. The high nobility in turn appreciated the usefulness of Jewish farmers and tenants to their estates, 
which they themselves, with their aristocratic indifference and indolence, knew only how to mismanage. The protection which this class accorded the Jews, principally at the diets controlled by them, was in exact proportion to the services rendered by the Jews as middlemen between them and the peasants. The magnates accordingly were entirely indifferent to the welfare of the rest of Jewry, the toiling masses of the Jewish population. Uncompromising hostility to the Jews marked the attitude of the urban estates, the merchants and artisans of the burgher class, with a considerable sprinkling of German settlers, whose influence was clearly noticeable. These organized tradesmen and handicraftsmen looked upon the Jews as their direct competitors. The magistracies, acting as the organs of municipal self-government, placed severe restrictions upon the Jews in the acquisition of real estates and in the pursuit of business and handicraft, while the trade unions occasionally set the riotous mobs at their heels. Still more resolute was the agitation of the Catholic clergy, which frequently succeeded in influencing legislation in the spirit of ecclesiastic intolerance. The interaction of all these forces shaped the legal and social status of the Polish-Lithuanian Jews in the course of the 16th and in the beginning of the 17th century, at a time when Poland was passing through the zenith of her political prosperity. The vacillations and upheavals in the position of the Jews were conditioned by the shifting forces in the direction of the one or the other above-mentioned factors in the course of history. 2. The liberal regime of Sigismund I. The opening years of the 16th century found the Jews fully restored to the rights of which their enemies had attempted to rob them at the end of the preceding century. Alexander Yagelo, the very same Lithuanian Grand Duke, who, from some obscure motive, had banished the Jews from his dominions in 1495, found it necessary to call them back as soon as he ascended the throne of Poland after the demise of his brother. In 1503, having consulted the lords of the realm, the King Alexander announced his decision to the effect that the Jews, exiled from Grodno and other cities of Lithuania, should be allowed to return and settle near the castles and in the localities in which they had lived formerly, and should be given back the houses, synagogues, cemeteries, farms and fields which had previously been in their possession. The reasons for this change of front may easily be traced to the vast economic importance of the Jews of the Polish kingdom, which had shortly before, in 1501, entered into a closer union with Lithuania, and to the invaluable services of Jewish tax farmers, on whom the royal budget to a large extent depended. One of these royal financiers was the wealth Josko, who farmed the customs and tolls in nearly half of Poland. To stimulate the endeavors of his financier, King Alexander exempted Josko and his employees from the authority of the local administration, placing him, after the manner of court dignitaries, under the jurisdiction of the royal court. But, taken as a whole, 
the king was even now far from friendly to the Jews. In 1505, he permitted the inclusion of the ancient charter of Boleslav of Kalish, the Magna Carta of Jewish liberties, in the Code of Organic Polish Laws, which was then being edited by the Chancellor John Lasky. But he was careful to point out that he did not thereby intend to ratify Boleslav's charter anew, but allowed its reproduction for the purpose of safeguarding the Christian population against the Jews, ad cautelam defensionis contra Judeos. Alexander's successor, Sigismund I Jagello, 1506-1548, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, favored a more liberal policy toward his Jewish subjects. Though a staunch Catholic, Sigismund was free from the spirit of anti-Jewish clericalism, and he endeavored to the best of his ability to live up to the principle proclaimed by him that equal justice should be meted out to the rich and mighty lords and to the meanest pauper. This lofty principle, so little compatible with the policy of class discrimination, could, however, inadequately be applied only there where the power of royalty was not handicapped by the mighty Schlachta and other estates. The only part of the Polish Empire where such a condition still existed in the time of Sigismund I was Lithuania, the patrimony of the Jagellos. There the royal, or rather the grand ducal authority, was more extensive and its form of manifestation more patriarchal than in the provinces of the crown or Poland proper. By entrusting a large part of the public tax contracts and land leases to the Jewish capitalist, the king could feel easy in his mind as to the integrity of his budget. The general contractor of the customs and other states' revenues in Lithuania, Michael Yosefovich, son of Joseph, a Jew from Brest-Litovsk, exercised occasionally also the function of Grand Ducal Treasurer, being commissioned to pay out of the collected impost the salaries of the local officials as well as the debts of his royal master. Prompted by the desire of rewarding the services of his financier, and at the same time, putting the communal affairs of his Jewish subject in better order, Sigismund appointed Michael Yosefovich to serve as the elder, or to use the official term, the senior of all Lithuanian Jews, 1514. The senior was invested with far-reaching powers. He had the right of conferring directly with the king in all important Jewish affairs, dispensing justice to his co-religionists in accordance with their own laws and collecting from them the taxes imposed by the state. He was to be assisted by a rabbi or a doctor, an expert of Jewish law. Whether the Lithuanian Jews acknowledged Michael Yosefovich as their supreme authority is open to doubt. The wealthy contractor, whom the will of the king had placed at the head of the Jews, could not in point of fact preside over the autonomous organization and their judiciary and rabbinate, since what was required was not officials, but men with special knowledge and training. All Michael could do was to act as the official go-between, representing the Jewish communities before the king 
and defending their rights and privileges, as well as their commercial and fiscal interests. In any event, Michael was more useful to his co-religionists than his brother Abraham Yosefovich, who, likewise a tax farmer, sacrificed his Judaism for the sake of a successful career. King Alexander conferred upon Abraham the rank of Starosta of Smolensk, while Sigismund raised him to the exalted position of Chancellor of the Ruthenian Exchequer. Abraham and his offspring were soon lost in the ranks of the higher Polish nobility. In agricultural Lithuania, with its patriarchal conditions of life, the antagonism between the classes was in its infancy, and as a result, the right of the Jews to freedom of transit and occupation was but rarely contested. They lived in the towns and villages, and were not yet so sharply marked off in language and mode of life from the Christian population as they became afterwards. The Jewish communities of Brest, Grodno, Pinsk, and Troki, the last consisting principally of Karaites, who had a municipality of their own, were important Jewish centers in the Dutch and enjoyed considerable autonomy. The rabbi of Brest, Mendel Frank, received from the king extensive administrative and judicial powers, including the right of imposing the harem and other penalties upon the recalcitrant members of the community. 1531. In the large cities of Poland proper, the position of the Jews was not nearly so favorable. Here, commercial life had attained a higher stage of development than in Lithuania, and in many lines of business, the Jews competed with the Christians. Taking advantage of the autonomy granted to the estates in the shape of the Magdeburg law, the Christian businessmen and handicraftsmen, represented by their magistracies and trade unions, were constantly endeavoring to restrict their rivals in their commercial pursuits. This was particularly the case in Posen, Krakow, and Lemberg, the leading centers respectively of the three provinces of Great Poland, Little Poland, and Red Russia, Galicia. In Posen, the Jews were hampered by the burgher masters and the elderman in carrying on their business or in displaying their goods in stores outside the Jewish quarter. When the Jews protested to the king, he warned the authorities of Posen not to subject their rivals to any hardship or to violate their privileges. 1517. The Christian merchant retorted that the Jews occupied the best shops, not only in the center of the town, but also on the marketplace, where formerly only prominent Christian merchant, both native and foreign, German, had been doing business, and where, in view of the concentration of large masses of Christians, the presence of Jews might lead to great temptations and even to seduction from the path of the true faith. The reference to religion used as a cloak for commercial greed did not fail to impress the devout Sigismund, and he forbade the Jews to keep stores on the marketplace. 1520. The professors of Christian love in Posen similarly forbade their Jewish fellow citizens to buy foodstuffs and other articles in the market until the Christian residents had completed their purchases. 
A little later, the king, in consequence of the influx of Jews into Posen, gave orders that no new Jewish settlers be admitted into the city, and that no houses owned by Christians be sold to them, without the permission of the Kahal elders. The Jews were to be restricted to definite quarters and to be denied the right of building their houses among those belonging to Christians. 1523 The same was the case in Lemberg. Yielding to the complaints of the magistracy about the competition of the Jews, the king restricted their freedom of commerce in several particulars, barring them from selling clothes in the whole of Red Russia and Podolia, except at the fairs, and limiting their sale of horned cattle to 2,000 head per year, 1515. The Piotrkov Diet of 1521 passed a law confining the trade of the Lemberg Jews to four articles, wax, furs, cloth, and horned cattle. These restrictions were the result of the widespread agitation which the pious Christian merchant had been conducting against their business rivals of other faiths. The magistracies of the three cities of Posen, Lemberg, and Krakow attempted to form a coalition for the purpose of carrying on a joint economic fight against Jewry. In Krakow and its suburb Kazimierz, the Jews had to endure even harsher restrictions in business than in the other two metropolitan centers of Poland. Competition in business occasionally resulted in physical violence and street riots. Anti-Jewish attacks were taking place in Posen and in Brest-Kwiatsk, and outbreaks were anticipated in Krakow. Representatives of the last Jewish community made their apprehensions known to the king. Sigismund issued a decree in 1530 denouncing in vehement terms the insolence of the rioters who were hoping for immunity and rigorously forbidding all acts of violence under penalty of death and confiscation of property. To allay the fears of the Jews, he ordered the burghers of Krakow to deposit the sum of 10,000 gulden with the exchequer as security for the maintenance of peace and safety in the city. The burgomasters, aldermen, and trade unions were warned by the king that in all their differences with the Jews, they should proceed in a legal manner and not by violence, by resorting to force of arms and inciting disorders. The king was powerless, however, to shield the Jews against other unpleasant manifestations of the Polish class regime, such as the extortions of the officials. The highest dignitaries of the court, no less than the local administration, were ever ready to fish in the troubled waters of the conflict of classes. The second wife of Sigismund, Queen Bona Sforza, an avaricious Italian princess, sold offices of the state to the highest bidder, while the courtiers and voevodas were just as venal on their own behalf. The queen's favorite, Peter Kmita, voevoda of Krakow and marshal of the crown, managed to accept bribes simultaneously from the Jewish and the Christian merchant, who lodged complaints against each other by promising both sides to defend their interests before the Diet or the king. 
During the fourth decade of the 16th century, the Jewish question became the object of violent disputes at the Polish Diets, the deputies of several regions having received anti-Jewish instructions. Now, the controlling factor in the Polish Diets was the Schlachta, whose attitude towards the Jews was not uniform. The big Schlachta, the magnates, the owners of huge estates and whole towns, were favorably disposed toward the Jews who lived in their domains and added to their wealth as farmers and taxpayers. But the petty Schlachta, the struggling squires, who were looking for places in the civil and state service, arrayed themselves on the side of the burgher class, which had always been hostile to the Jews. This petty Schlachta bitterly resented the fact that the royal revenues had been turned over to Jewish contractors, who, as collectors of customs and taxes, attained to official dignity and gradually forced their way into the ranks of the nobility. The income from the collection of the revenues and the influence connected with it, this Schlachta regarded as its inalienable prerogative. The clergy again saw in this enhancement of Jewish influence a serious menace to the Catholic faith, while the urban estates had a vital interest in limiting the commercial rights of the Jews. At the Piotrkov Diet of 1538, the anti-Jewish agitation was carried on with considerable success. It resulted in the adoption of a statute or constitution containing a separate Jewish section in which the old canonical laws cropped out. We hereby prescribe and decree, it is stated in this section, that from now on, and for all future time, all those who manage our revenues must unconditionally be members of the landed nobility and persons professing the Christian faith. We ordain for inviolable observance that no Jews shall be interested in the capacity of contractors with the collection of revenues of any kind, for it is unworthy and contrary to divine right that persons of this description should be admitted to any kind of honors or to the discharge of public functions among Christian people. It is further decreed that the Jews have no right of unrestricted commerce and can do no business in any locality except with the special permission of the king or by agreement with the magistracies. In the villages, they are forbidden to trade altogether. Pawnbroking and money-lending on the part of Jews are hatched about by a series of oppressive regulations. The capstone of Piotrkov constitution is the following clause. Whereas the Jews, disregarding the ancient regulations, have thrown off the marks by which they were distinguishable from the Christians and have arrogated to themselves a form of dress which closely resembles that of the Christians, so that it is impossible to recognize them, be it resolved for permanent observance that the Jews of our realm, all and sundry, in whatever place they happen to be found, shall wear special marks, to wit, a beret, or a hat, or some other headgear of yellow cloth. Exception is to be made in favor of travelers, who, while on the road, shall be permitted to discard or conceal marks of this kind. 
The fine for violating this regulation is fixed at one gulden. The early articles of the Constitution of 1538, which had serious consequences for the Jews of the Crown, the Jews of Lithuania were not affected by these regulations, were those barring them from tax farming and subjecting them to commercial restrictions. The canonical law concerning a distinctive headgear was more in the nature of a demonstration than a serious legal enactment, since compliance with it, owing to the high state of culture among the Polish Jews and their important role in the economic life of the country, was a matter of impossibility. Behind this regulation lurks the hand of the Catholic clergy, which was alarmed at that time by the initial successes of the Reformation in Poland, and was in fear that the influence of Judaism might enhance the progress of the heresy. The excited imagination of the clerical fanatics perceived signs of a Jewish propaganda in the rationalistic doctrine of anti-Trinitarianism, which was then making its appearance, denying the dogma of the Holy Trinity. The specter of a rising sect of Judaizers haunted the guardians of the Church. One occurrence in particular engendered tremendous excitement among the inhabitants of Krakow. A Catholic woman of that city, Catherine Zaleshovska by name, the wife of an alderman and four score years of age, was convicted of denying the fundamental dogmas of Christianity and adhering secretly to Jewish doctrines. The bishop of Krakow, Peter Gamlot, having made futile endeavors to bring Kathleen back into the fold of the church, condemned her to death. The unfortunate woman was burned at the stake on the marketplace of Krakow in 1539. The following description of this event was penned by an eyewitness, the Polish writer Lukas Kurnitsky. The priest Gamlat, bishop of Krakow, assembled all canons and collegiates in order to examine her, Katherine Zaleszowska, who had been accused of Judaizing, as to her principles of faith. When, in accordance with our creed, she was asked whether she believed in Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth, she replied, I believe in God, who created all that we see and do not see, who cannot be comprehended by the human reason, who poured forth his bounty over men and over all things in the universe. Do you believe in his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost? She was asked, she answered, The Lord God has neither wife nor son, nor does he need them, for sons are needed by those who die, but God is eternal, and since he was not born, it is impossible that he should die. It is we whom he considers his sons, and his sons are those who walk in his path. Here the collegiates shouted, Thou utterest evil, thou miserable one, bethink thyself, Surely there are prophecies that the Lord would send his Son into the world to be crucified for our sins, in order that we, having been disobedient from the days of our ancestor Adam, may be reconciled to God the Father. A great deal more was said by the learned man to the apostate woman, but the more they spoke, the more stubborn was she in her contention that God was not and could not be born as a human being. 
when it was found impossible to detach her from her Jewish beliefs, it was decided to convict her of blasphemy. She was taken to the city jail, and a few days later she was burned. She went to her death without the slightest fear. The well-known contemporary chronicler Bielski expresses himself similarly. She went to her death as if it were a wedding. During the same time, there were rumors afloat to the effect that in various places in Poland, particularly in the province of Krakow, many Christians were embracing Judaism and, after undergoing circumcision, were fleeing for greater safety to Lithuania, where they were sheltered by the local Jews. When the rumor reached the king, he dispatched two commissioners to Lithuania to direct a strict investigation. The officers of the king proceeded with excessive ardor. They raided Jewish homes and stopped travelers on the road, making arrests and holding cross-examinations. The inquiry failed to reveal the presence of Judaizing sectarians in Lithuania, though it caused the Jews considerable trouble and alarm. 1539. Scarcely had this investigation been closed when the Lithuanian Jews were faced by another charge. Many of them were said to be on the point of leaving the country and acting with the knowledge and cooperation of the Sultan, intended to emigrate to Turkey accompanied by the Christians who had been converted to Judaism. It was even rumored that the Jews had already succeeded in dispatching a party of circumcised Christian children and adults across the Moldavian frontier. The king gave orders for a new investigation, which was marked, like the preceding one, by acts of lawlessness and violence. The Jews were in fear that the king might lend an ear to these accusations and withdraw his protection from them. Accordingly, Jews of Brest, Grodno, and other Lithuanian cities hastened to send a deputation to King Sigismund, which solemnly assured him that the old rumors and accusations concerning them were mere slander, that the Lithuanian Jews were faithfully devoted to their country, that they had no intention to emigrate to Turkey, and finally, that they had never tried to convert Christians to their faith. At the same time, they made complaints about the insults and brutalities which had been inflicted upon them, pointing to the detrimental effects of the investigation on the trade of the country. The assertions of the deputation were borne out by the official inquiry, and Sigismund, returning his favor to the Jews, cleared them of all suspicion and promised henceforward not to trouble them on wholesale charges unsupported by evidence. This pledge was embodied in a special charter, a sort of habeas corpus, granted by the king to the Jews of Lithuania in 1540. All this, however, did not discourage the Catholic clergy, who, under the leadership of Bishop Gamrat, continued their agitation against the hated Jews. They incited public opinion against them by means of slanderous books written in medieval style, the Stupendis Erroribus Judeorem, 1541, the Sanctis Interfectis or Judaeis, 1543. The Church Synod of 1542, assembled in Piotrkov, issued the following constitution. The Synod, taking into consideration the many dangers that confront the Christians and the Church, from the large numbers of Jews who, 
having been driven from the neighboring countries, had been admitted into Poland, and unscrupulously combined holiness with ungodliness, has passed the following resolution. Lest the great concentration of Jews in the country lead, as must be apprehended, to even worse consequences, His Majesty the King be petitioned as follows. 1. That in the diocese of Gnesen and particularly in the city of Krakow, the number of Jews be reduced to a fixed norm, such as the district is set aside for them can accommodate. 2. That in all other places where the Jews did not reside in former times, they be denied the right of settlement and be forbidden to buy houses from Christians, those already bought to be returned to their former owners. 3. That the new synagogues, even those erected by them in the city of Krakow, be ordered to be demolished. 4. Whereas the Church suffers the Jews for the sole purpose of recalling to our minds the tortures of our Savior, their numbers shall in no circumstance increase. Moreover, according to the regulations of the holy canons, they shall be permitted only to repair their old synagogues, but not erect new ones. This is followed by seven more clauses containing various restrictions. The Jews are forbidden to keep Christian servants in their houses, particularly nursery maids, to act as steward of estate belonging to nobles, lest those who ought to be the slaves of Christians should thereby acquire dominion and jurisdiction over them, to work and to trade on Catholic holidays, and to offer their goods publicly for sale even on weekdays. It goes without saying that the rule prescribing a distinguished Jewish dress is not neglected. This whole anti-Jewish fabric of laws, which the members of the Synod decided to submit to the king, failed to receive legal sanction. Still, the Catholic clergy was for a long time guided by it in its policy toward the Jews, a policy, needless to say, of intolerance and gross prejudices. These restrictions were pia desideria of priests and monks, some of which were realized during the subsequent Catholic reaction. End of section 5